Go ahead and take out your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We have been in this high priestly prayer for a couple of weeks now, seeing the intercessory work of our great high priest. Verses 1 through 5, we saw Jesus praying for himself and for the glory that was going to be given back to him as he uh, finished the work that the Father had sent him to do. Um, and then he is going to ascend into heaven. And, and we started looking last week at Jesus' petition for his own disciples. He starts by commending them on how God the Father has brought them to where they are today. And then he prays that um, they would be unified together and that they would be safe and secure. And as we started this, um, just kind of a, a zeroing in on and magnifying what's happening in these verses... We're going to see Jesus pray for three specific things for his disciples. And I believe that um, the implication does um, go to us as well. Even though this is explicitly for his disciples, we would see that these prayer requests are also given for us as believers. And then in verse 20, he is going to explicitly speak to us and, and pray on our behalf that the Father would work in our lives. But for our purpose this morning, I want to look at verses 13 through 19 and ask God to show us the glory that is in these verses. Let's read them together. John chapter 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Father, these verses are just magnificent. It's as if we have reached the top of Everest and are looking at just pure splendor. And so, Father, I, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see what is so clearly here, that you would take these words written so long ago from a prayer that was prayed so long ago, but still has impact for us this morning in such a way that it would change our lives. God, for any in this room that do not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would bow the knee to Christ, turn from their sins today, and find forgiveness at the cross. And God, for those who are saved, who are walking as followers of you, that this morning they would see the mission that you have given. That you, they would see the request that you ask of your Father for us, for believers. And that we would carry out this mission with joy, with gladness, with excellence, being intentional, all for the, the praise of the glory of your grace. So give us eyes to see this morning. Open our eyes to behold what your word would teach us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, 
Amen. The first of these three requests, you can see very clearly, it's Jesus is praying for joy, our joy. Verse 13, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Joy. Jesus prays for his disciples' joy. In the midst of his coming death, just a few hours away, Jesus prays that they would have joy. Now, he's already said this before, and we've already been able to dive deeply into this truth of what joy is. If you go back to chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus said, Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again in your heart. will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Just a couple verses over, verse 24. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And if you go back to chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So this first prayer request of the three that we're looking at this morning, we've already seen Jesus asking his father for this, telling his disciples that he wants to give them this. But here he specifically says, again, in chapter 17, verse 13, that they would have my joy made full in themselves. How joyful is Jesus? He is the happiest person in the world. He's the most joyful person in the world. And yet at the same time, and this helps us define what joy is, he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So here's Jesus, the most happiest person ever on the face of the earth, and he's about to go into the garden and sweat great drops of blood and cry out to his father in grief. So there's a way to be the most joyful person in the world and yet know what grief is, to weep with those who weep. Why? Because joy is not circumstantially based. It's not based on how you feel based on your circumstances. It's based on the deep-seated confidence that God is in control, that he is on his throne and it's a satisfaction and happiness knowing that God is working all things together for your good and for his glory every second of every day. Uh, one of the definitions that we use for joy and one of the kids' songs that we sing in our car with our children, joy is the flag flown high on the castle of the, of the heart where the king is in residence there. He's, he's my king. He will protect me. He will keep me safe. And therefore, I can have joy in the midst of whatever trial I would be going through. Jesus prays for his jo their joy. And as we've already looked at that in depth, I want to keep moving because we're going to look at one specific aspect that he hasn't been detailing yet. So the second thing that I want to look at is Jesus prays for their protection. We've seen this one already. We've already seen joy. We've already seen protection. This is verses 14 through 15. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. We, we know that language. The world hates the master. How much more so are they going to hate the servants? They're not of this world. We know why we're hated, because we are not of this world. The world would love its own. You remember Jesus said, oh, the world would love its own, but since you're not of the world, they're going to hate you. And so he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask, here's the, the petition. Number one, I ask for their joy to be made full. Number two, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Again, we've already seen the first part of this request in chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 
So he's, he's speaking to say, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when you're hated. And he reiterates that here in this high priestly prayer. But then he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I want them to stay. But I'm asking that you keep them from the evil one. You keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking that you take them out. They're going to be alone. They're going to be hated. But notice they're not alone because of the word they, it's a plural. They are going to be alone together. They're going to be out of the world alone. They're going to be separate from the world, but they're going to be together in their aloneness. And most importantly, that Jesus is going to be with them. He will never leave them or forsake them. But Jesus says, they're not of this world. Don't take them out. Leave them in. But they're not of the world. This tells us so much. We could sum it up with, don't treat this world as your home. This world isn't our home. Jesus says, leave them here, but they're not of this world. They're in it, but they're not of it. Don't take them out. Leave them here, but leave them here with a mindset that sees this world clearly for what it is. Martin Luther used to say, this world is just preparation. It's scaffolding, it's scaffolding for the world to come. It's, just, it's scaffolding. When the next world comes, the scaffolding's torn down. So don't place everything that you have in this world because it's going to be torn down. When the next world comes, this world has fulfilled its purpose and will be renewed and will be no more. Are we investing in the next world or are we investing in this world? But Jesus goes on to say, keep them. So the prayer is, Father, don't take them out of the world. Leave them here, but keep them from the evil one. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. One commentator says it this way, the prayer of Jesus was not for God to send something like a rescue plane to evacuate the disciples from the hostile setting in the world. Such a plan would destroy God's mission through them. Nor was it to wrap them up in some plastic danger-free safety casing where they would never encounter evil. The prayer of Jesus was to protect them from the coming onslaught of evil and from the evil one himself. We could put it this way. Jesus' prayer is that the disciples would be able to recognize the enemy and recognize the enemy's attacks. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you could just write that down. Peter tells us, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert for the enemy. The devil is going around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then Jesus says, through Peter, resist him. Stand firm, resist him. And he gives us the how. By your faith, stand firm in your faith, resist the devil, believe the promises that God has given, and you will be kept secure in the hands of Christ. We don't have to be afraid of the devil. We don't have to be afraid of the enemy. We don't have to go around binding Satan. I bind Satan. I bind Satan. I hear that terminology used, and I've always wondered, if we're always binding Satan, who's the one that's letting Satan go? Because frankly, we should stop binding Satan and bind up the person that keeps letting Satan go. We're not, we don't need to bind Satan. Jesus says, just protect them. Let Satan do his thing. But Father, protect them. Keep them. Jesus knows what's going to happen when he leaves. He knows the threat that's about to come after these disciples. The master is going to be gone. And since the master is going to be gone, everyone's going to go after the followers. And he's personally, I love this, our Savior is personally involved in protecting those who are his. But here's my question. Is Jesus praying this prayer for you? He, he would if you are in a place where the enemy is attacking you. 
If you are in the place where you are doing the work that Jesus has given you to do, so much so that the enemy says, I want them out of here. I'm going to take them down. And Jesus says, I pray that they be protected. Keep them from the evil one. Jesus would not be praying this prayer for somebody that's not in the fight at all. Somebody that doesn't need protection, Jesus isn't going to pray for their protection. So do you think that Jesus is praying this prayer for you? Are you living in such a way where you need this prayer because you're living so devoted to Christ that the enemy is coming after you? By the way, Jesus' prayer for his disciples here is answered with a yes. And again, this helps our understanding of what protection looks like because Jesus' prayer for Peter, keep him, keep him safe, secure, that's going to be answered with a yes, and Peter's still going to be crucified upside down. That does not mean that the Father said, sorry, I'm not going to protect him. So it helps define for us what protection is. Protection is not safety in a comfortable lifestyle. It means eternally secure and immune to ultimate destruction. Satan can kill you if you'd like to, if God allows him to. But Satan can't ultimately destroy your soul. So Jesus says, Father, please give them my joy. And we have that defined for us because it's Jesus' joy. And we know that Jesus is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And then he also says, keep them from the evil one. And we have that. Not only have we already seen that prayer request before, but we have it here in the context, knowing that that prayer doesn't mean just a comfortable lifestyle. It means protection from ultimate destruction, walking away from the faith. And we saw that last week where Jesus says, keep them, keep them in our name so that they will never walk away. So those are the first two prayer requests, but that leads us to the third, the third prayer request. And again, as we said last week, it's, you get to know somebody when you hear them pray, and we are getting to know our Savior even more as we hear what he's praying for. But here's the last prayer request. So we've seen joy, protection, and finally, sanctification. Sanctification. This is verses 16 through 19. And we have to just press pause. We'll see how far we can get because there is so much here. Notice first, he says this in verse 16. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So they're not of the world. But verse 15, he said, don't take them out of the world. So they're not of this world, but I don't want them to be out of the world. I want them to be in the world, not of the world. And then drop down to verse 18. Why? Because as you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So they have a mission that cannot happen outside of this world. They have a mission. I don't know if you've asked yourself this question. Wouldn't heaven just be better than this? Like once we get saved, can God just make us go into heaven instantly? Just teleport us instantly. And the answer is yes, to a certain degree. Heaven would be much better, but there's one thing that you can't do in heaven, and that is share the gospel. God did not save you just simply to call you home. God saved you so that you would be a disciple maker here. You have a mission here, just as Jesus was sent by the Father into the world. Drop down to verse 18. As you, Father, sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is that, we call it a comparative conjunction. Exactly as I have been, in the exact same way. And he's used this many times before. Just as I am joyful, they will be. Just as I am unified, they will be. Just as I am loved, we're going to see that next week, they will be. But here he says, just as I was sent, I had a mission, and I have given them a mission. That word sent, verse 18, as you sent me, 
I sent them, that word sent, that's that word where we get apostle from, apostolos. This is one who is sent with a mission, with a mandate. And notice Jesus says in verse 18, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. It hasn't happened yet, but in Jesus' mind, it's as good as done. It hasn't happened yet. They have not been sent yet. They're going to be sent in the book of Acts. But Jesus sees this mission as good as done. It's going to be accomplished. I'm going to send them. They're going to go out. They have a mission. So, verse 15, don't take them out. Leave them here. Verse 16, but let them not be of here. In here, but not of here. Verse 18, they have a mission. How do we carry out that mission? How do we put this all together? It's verse 17. Verse 17, the extent to which these disciples would be effective in carrying out their mission is proportional to the degree that they will be sanctified in the truth. If you want to be successful in the mission that God's given to you, you must be, verse 17, sanctified in the truth. So, be in the world. Don't take them out. Don't be of the world. That's going to talk about sanctification a little bit. Um, Keep them here. Don't take them out. I have a mission, and the way that they will do that mission successfully is by being sanctified. So, verse 17, sanctify them. This is the, the son's third prayer request from this morning. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Four questions that just pop up from this verse. What, number one, what does Jesus mean by sanctify? What, what does it mean to be sanctified? Now, we have two definitions biblically for sanctified. One is being made more like Christ, right? Being holy, being made holy, looking more like Jesus. The other is being set apart for a purpose, being set apart for a purpose. Um, in the Bible, there are things that are sanctified. They're set apart. Don't use this unless this is happening. Uh, I don't know about you, but when Christmas rolls around, we, we have um, Christmas plates that we, we bring out during the Christmas season. They're, they're sanctified dishes that they are set aside for a purpose. We use them for that purpose. We put them back. Christmas is over. They go back in the box, and they go back in the garage. They're sanctified. They have a purpose. Jesus is going to help us define this because he says, verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself. So with these two definitions of sanctification, I think that Jesus is saying in verse 17, more sanctify them, set them apart for a mission, more that than make them holy. I think they're one and the same. They're, They're two aspects of the same coin because you cannot successfully do the mission if you are not successfully more like Christ. But here Jesus is saying, I've been set apart. I've been sanctified. I've been given a mission. And I have a mission for them as well. And that mission involves them, yes, becoming more like Christ, becoming more godly. But Jesus is saying they're set apart. Father, set them apart. Keep them, protect them, give them joy, and then set them apart for a purpose. The implications of that for us is that our mission is the exact same as the disciples, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But our mission is sacred. It's given by God himself. The second question, not only what does Jesus mean by sanctify, but what is the instrument that makes this sanctifying happen? 
what's the instrument that makes it happen? And you can see it there in verse 17. The truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Let the truth mold them, shape them in order to enable them to be successful in their mission. Sanctify them in the truth. Notice Jesus does not say sanctify them in your word which is true. He says sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, it might not seem like there's a big difference between your word is truth and your word is true. But there is a massive difference between Jesus saying your word is true and your word is truth. Think about it. If Jesus said, Father, sanctify them in your truth, your word is true. Then what Jesus is saying is your word is true based on an objective standard outside of it that says this is what's true. And oh, your word fits under that. If God's word is merely true, then that means there's a standard outside of God's word with which we would test God's word in order to find out what is really true in God's word. But Jesus is saying so much more than the Bible is simply accurate and reliable. It is, but Jesus is saying the Bible is the standard of what is true. The Bible is the standard of what is true. Your word is the truth. Measure everything according to the truth. It is the standard. Every claim of truthfulness must conform and be tested according to the Bible. Imagine what would have happened if the disciples did not have an objective standard of what is true and they are sent out into the world. They go sharing the gospel. And as they're sharing the gospel and people are arguing against them, saying, well, that's not true. This is what's true. This is my worldview. This is what I believe. That's not true according to your belief, so your belief isn't true. They'd have to step outside of what they believe in. Okay, what is truth? And let's figure out, is this... No, they have the truth. So Paul can say in Galatians chapter 1, if anybody comes to you and gives you a different gospel, it's anathema. It's not truth because this is truth. We have truth. We don't have to question that. The strength of the truth's grip on the disciples would determine the measure of their success as they go out into the world. This is why we teach the Bible, preach the Bible. This is why everything that we do at CBC is centered around God's Word, because God's Word is truth. Hebrews chapter 4, it's living and active. It, it goes and divides our motives, our thoughts, and our intentions. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, it's profitable for all things. It's profitable to work in us to make us more like Christ so that our mission would be successful. So we have what sanctification is, we have what the instrument is that makes sanctification happen. Question number three is, of whom does Jesus make this request? Who is Jesus talking to when he makes this request? And this seems like a very obvious question, and it is. He's speaking to his Father. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. But... Though that's an obvious question with an obvious answer, I think the implications must be stated. While sanctification is brought about through immersion in the Word, it is only possible by the work of the Father. Just think about it. If sanctification were possible apart from the Father's work, then Jesus wouldn't be praying this. Father, please do the sanctifying work through your word. Jesus would have just said, hey, disciples, study the word and you'll be sanctified. But instead, he says, 
only the Father working through the Word will sanctification happen. Only by the Father doing that. The Word is the scalpel, but God the Father is the surgeon. The Word is the instrument, but God the Father is the performer. Sanctification will not happen apart from the Word of God. Absolutely, amen and amen. But the Word by itself, apart from the Father working through the Word, will not sanctify. That's why we pray every Sunday morning, Father, through your Spirit, open my eyes to see. The Bible isn't some magic book that if you just open it in the morning and read, your day is going to go better. If you are going to know Christ and be sanctified by the Word, then you need the Father to do the work through His Word. You need to pray. This is why you're going to see constantly in the book of Acts that people are devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Why? Because the ministry of the Word without God working through that ministry is pointless. So the, the Father is the one that is asked by Jesus, do the sanctifying work through the Word. Do the sanctified work. It's always both and. The last question is, another obvious one, for whom does Jesus make this request? So we have what sanctification means to Jesus, how we are sanctified in the truth, who Jesus is asking this request of, the Father, and then he finally, the question is, who is he asking this request of, for whom is he asking? Sanctify them. Who are the them? That's the disciples. Sanctify my followers. Now, again, I think explicitly this is very clearly the 11. I think that there are other passages that will tell us that it's us as well, that we are to be sanctified, that we've been given the great commission to go make disciples. That's our mission. And in order to successfully complete that mission, we need to be made more like Christ and go through the process of being made more holy. But just here, he asks the Father to sanctify the disciples in the Word, we need to stop and ask the question, how are we doing? How are we doing with the means that God has given to us to be sanctified? We are living in an age where we are just swimming in Bibles. Just Bibles everywhere. Bible on your phone. It's no longer turn in your Bibles. It's turn on your Bibles. We're swimming in Bibles. But my question this morning is, do you love the Word of God? And are you giving yourself to the means that God has given for your sanctification? Are you giving yourself? Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. The disciples have been given a mission. Father, don't take them out of the world. Leave them here. Don't let them be of the world. They have a mission in the world. And the way that they're going to carry out that mission is by being set apart for the mission. Now, on what basis is Jesus founding everything that he is saying, rooting everything that he's saying? How do we know that we will be successful? Is it because the disciples have earned this? They're better than others? No, it's because Jesus very soon is going to go to the cross and earn their sanctification for them. Redemption and sanctification go hand in hand. One is always going with the other, but the order is vital. And so Jesus says, verse 19, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. 
I want them to be sanctified in the truth, but in order for that to happen, I need to sanctify myself, go to the cross, I have a mission, I have remained holy, and I will purchase for them their sanctification so that they also may be sanctified in me and in the truth. Jesus sanctifies himself as an example. He sanctifies himself to show us how we are supposed to live our life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, John says, Walk as Jesus has walked. Just like him, walk like him. Be like him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Um, we are in Christ, so be like him. Live like him. Remember his temptations when he was tempted by the devil. How was he protected? How was he kept? He was kept by going back to the truth. Your word is truth. He was sanctified in the truth, answering with scripture. But in verse 19, there are three things that just jump off the page about the sacrifice that Jesus is speaking of. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Number one, this is a voluntary sacrifice. I sanctify myself. I'm not being sanctified. I'm not being forced to do this. I'm doing this myself. I'm actively doing this myself. Jesus is not a victim at the cross. He's a volunteer at the cross. And he volunteers because he loves you. He's not forced to go to the cross. He volunteers. He loves us enough to make this happen. And this should, in turn, draw our love for him. We love him because he first loved us. We sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This is unbelievable love. He says, I will voluntarily go and take their place. I will sanctify myself. I have a mission. I will set myself on that mission. I will remain holy. Don't ever forget that Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross because he wanted to. He wanted to because he loves you. It's a voluntary sacrifice. It's also a very specific sacrifice. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. For them. I am going to sacrifice myself for them. Who is the them? The group is contrasted. Them is contrasted against the world. They are not of the world. I am doing this for them, not for the world. I am doing this sacrificing for them. That's a very specific sacrifice. This is the high priestly prayer, right? Jesus is our great high priest. Just think about when the high priest would go before the Holy of Holies, when he would go to make intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel. Remember he had the breastplate, had the 12 stones on the breastplate. When he goes before God to offer his intercessory work on behalf of those on his breastplate, does he say, God, I'm asking on behalf of everyone that's on my breastplate, and I'm asking on behalf of the Jebusites and the Perizzites, I'm asking on behalf of the Hittites, I'm asking on behalf of all the other ites that are out there. No, the high priest would go before God and say, God, I have a very specific people, 12 tribes, and I'm interceding on their behalf. Everybody else, not in on this. And this foreshadows what the great high priest is doing. Jesus is praying for his own, and he makes atonement for his own. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? You will have a child. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is very specific. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Should a husband love his wife in a different, specific way than he loves any other woman? If your answer to that is, nah, I think that they should just you know, love everybody all the same. We have a problem. I think we had a problem last week, too, with something that was said. So we have a problem. We had to do some biblical counseling here. There's a very specific love that a husband should have for his wife. And Paul says that's patterned after the love that Jesus had for the church and gave himself up for her. Does God love all people? Absolutely. John's been telling us that. Does God love all people the same way? No, absolutely. John's been telling us that. But my question is, why does that make God sound bad? I have so many people that say, oh, that's bad. God should not love all people without distinction. That's wrong. Again, let's just use the example of marriage. If I, if I said, you know what, guys, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking, and um, I love all women the exact same way that I love my wife. I, my wife is special, but all of you are special in the exact same way. Um, you guys would not look at me and go, man, that, he's worthy of respect. He is, this is an amazing man. You would look and say, something's off, and I don't know if I want to be a part of this church anymore. <laughs> like, something's wrong. And if I said, Ladies, I love you. I have a deep affection and respect for you. But I love my wife more than I love all of you combined. If I said that, I don't think anybody would look and say, this guy is just a jerk. <laughs> and I don't think I want to be a part of his church anymore. Like, I, I think that you would say, amen, praise the Lord. We want you to have a strong marriage. I don't know why we don't do the same with God. Jesus says, I am setting myself apart with a great specific love for my bride, and I voluntarily give myself for her. For me, personally, my amazement goes through the roof for Christ. This isn't just, I love everybody equally. Does God love all people? Yes. But the book of Revelation says, with the blood of Jesus, he purchased from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, from every tribe. He didn't purchase every tribe. He purchased from every tribe. We could say it this way. Jesus does some things for all people, but he does all things for some people. And his sacrifice here is so intentional and so specific that I think he is thinking of you by name on the cross. He's not just dying saying, here's an offer. He's, he's purchasing your sanctification, your security. Yes, your redemption, but he's thinking of you. He has your name in his mind, on his heart, as he's dying, as he's giving himself. Number three, it's a purposeful sacrifice. I have a purpose. It's voluntary for, uh, for their sake. I sanctify myself. I'm doing this. It's specific. It's for them, and it's purposeful, so that they may be sanctified in the truth. When he cries out on the cross, it's finished, it's accomplished. He is purchasing for us our salvation, our sanctification, and our glorification. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in, which he created for us beforehand. These are the good works he is purchasing for us. So, Jesus prays, Father, give them joy, give them protection, and give them sanctification. Set them apart for a mission and enable them to complete that mission. And the basis of all of this is verse 19. It's the cross. We can never get beyond the cross. If you ever think, man, why are we talking about the cross again? Do we have to talk about the cross again? It's like asking, do I have to hug my kids today? 
Do I have to? No, it's a natural byproduct of those who know how serious this relationship is. The fastest way to make a shipwreck of your faith is to get beyond the cross. So can I just ask, is there anything in this life more important to you than the cross? Is there anything more important to you than what Jesus did at the cross? If there is, and you would be honest to say that, why? My encouragement would, why do you feel that that thing is more important? Let's have honest dialogues, honest conversations about the glory of the cross. Maybe you don't fully understand it. Maybe you do, but you just don't want it. But Jesus is praying for something incredibly profound and powerful in these verses. So I want to wrap them up this way. I want to wrap them up with the implication because the implication for us personally, individually, and then corporately as a church is massive. It's massive. Number one, just three points for conclusion. Number one, God wants a holy people for a holy purpose. God wants a holy people for a holy purpose. Every company has some form of a brand, right? You see a cup with a lady in green that looks kind of like a mermaid slash alien thing. You know that this is probably Starbucks. Um, Golden Arches, you know this is McDonald's. Every company has a brand. The church It's not a company, it's a people, but it has a brand. The identifying marker of the church, the identifying marker of somebody who knows Christ and is known by Christ, is holiness. It's holiness. Jesus says, sanctify them. Set them apart for a mission and set them apart from sin. Set them apart for the mission and set them apart from sin. God wants a holy people. And if I can say it this way, God wants a holy people, not a moral people. Is there a difference? Are we splitting hairs here? I think there's a difference. I see both in the scriptures. I see the Pharisees being moral, and I see Jesus being holy. Morality is typically defined by what you don't do. And holiness is typically defined by something much more positive. The moral person abstains from actions. I'm not going to do that. The holy person hates the thought of doing wrong at all and loves to do what the Father wants him to do. Moral people are concerned about what others think them to be. The holy person is concerned about what God wants him to be. The moral person has this mind-numbing list of do's and don'ts. I don't do this, I do this. I don't do this, I do this. And they typically like telling other people what that list is. The holy person thinks only of what would bring his Savior the most glory. God wants a holy people, not just a moral, ethical people, but a holy people completely set apart from sin, yes, but for the purpose of being on a mission. And what's the mission? To show others the glory of Jesus, to show others through the Great Commission that Jesus Christ is worthy to be followed. Do you want to be effective in that ministry? Do you want to be effective in disciple-making? Then you have to be sanctified. You want to be of any earthly good in this mission? Then you have to be completely heavenly-minded. Here's a a buzzword that is dying out, which I think is a good thing. Um, In in church, we we used to say um, we have to be missional. You guys heard that term? Missional. We have to be on mission, let's just say. It's on on mission for the purpose of being on mission. And well-intentioned, well-meaning pastors would would say, in order to be missional, in order to be on mission, we really have to set aside theology and doctrine. Just less Bible, more practical living together, cultural understanding, cultural involvement. 
Just stop being so biblical and be more missional. But what Jesus is saying in these verses is the connection between verse 17 and 18, effectiveness of gospel ministry, of being missional, is proportional to sanctification. I have, a, I have a mission, and in order for them to complete that mission, they need to be sanctified. And sanctification is proportional to the intake of the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. So in order to be missional, we have to be deeply theological. We must be deeply theological. You cannot be truly missional without being theological. But you can be deeply theological without being missional, without being on mission. And again, I think that if there is any danger for our church, for us as a church, it's that, being deeply theological without remembering the mission for which the sanctification is designed to accomplish. This is death to a church. When a church becomes theological and not missional, this is how churches get mean. This is how churches get ugly. This is the biting and devouring that the scriptures talk about. We have to be in the world. We must be in the world to be on mission. This is why we are here. We have to be deeply theological as we are deeply missional. What about you? Where do you fit in that category of, okay, I want to be on mission, engage with the world, or I want to be biblical and not engage with the world? There's typically two extremes. We could call it cultural gluttony and cultural anorexia. Cultural gluttony just says, I've got to be like the world. In order to reach the world, I've got to be like the world. I've got to consume what the culture is giving to me and be pressed into their mold so that I can speak their language and dive into their world. The world's constantly preaching, and if you choose the cultural gluttony route, you will choose the route of less Bible. I don't need Bible. I just need to be missional. This is missional without being theological. And before you know it, you are of the world. You're not in the world, but not of the world. You are of the world. And maybe some of you struggle with that. I just want to be in the world and kind of like the world so I can understand the world, so I can talk to the world. But I think, again, the danger for our church is the cultural anorexia, a radical withdrawal from the world, so much so that we're afraid of the world. The world is now the enemy. Instead of the enemy being the enemy and the world being under the enemy's power, the world's my enemy. This is being theological without being missional. Let me ask a question to kind of bring out where you fit culturally a glutton, cultural anorexia. What, what does your involvement with the world look like? When was the last time that you had a non-believer over for dinner at your house who wasn't a part of your extended family? When was the last time you had a non-believer over to your house for a meal with a purposeful, intentional relationship and they weren't a part of your family? How missional are we? We're supposed to be here on mission for the purpose of sharing the gospel and making disciples. This is the best time to be alive. This is just the best. We are in such a dark, sin-infested world and culture that we have so many people around us in our community. This is why we planted this church. We have so many people that are stuck, aimless in this life. They don't know what they are here for, why they are living life, and we have the key to release them from, from despair, from depression, from the entrapment, the enslavement of sin. It's the gospel. And the Bible tells us that we are on an offensive posture, not a defensive. We are 
uh, storming the gates of hell. And remember the, the gospel, the church will prevail. Uh, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. We are attacking the gates of hell. God wants a holy people for a holy mission. Do you want both? That would be the second question. Do you want what God's want, God wants? Do you want both? Many people say, oh, I'm on mission. I want to have a holy mission, and I'm ready to go reach the world, but they forget you can't do that correctly and effectively without being sanctified in the truth. Some people say, oh, I just want to be sanctified, and it'll just happen. But you can't just dive into the truth and have theology become a part of who you are and expect that to just overflow without an intention, intentional missional focus on others around you. Do you want what God wants? Do you want to be holy? Do you want to hate sin? Are you content with who you are? Are you content with how you look? I personally am not content with how I look. I, I don't look like Jesus. My affections are not like Jesus' affections. My desires are not like his desires. And I think all of us should have a holy discontent until we see Jesus face to face. You've heard the phrase, churches are like hospitals, right? And I believe they are. Churches are absolutely like hospitals. Our church is a hospital. You are welcome to come in sick, needy, dying, and we will treat you. You will not be turned away. You'll be cared for. We'll take care of you spiritually. Only healthy people steer clear of hospitals. Only healthy people say, I don't need to go there. I don't want to go there. So if you consider yourself spiritually healthy, you won't want to be a part of what the body of Christ is wanting to do. But you might be here and you might think, I absolutely am sick. And so I come to the church as my hospital. But I kind of want to stay here. I kind of want to stay where I am. No hospital allows you to come in sick, plagued by whatever infirmities you might have, and just, you know, you can remain that way. That's not a hospital, that's hospice. And our church is not hospice. Our church is designed by God through the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 4, for the growing up of the body into the maturity of Christ. We all are so incredibly lacking in areas that we need God's word and we need others to help us to grow into the conformity of Christ. So do you want what God wants? God's aim is to make you look like his son. And he does that through the truth, which is his word. To neglect the truth, his word, will forever impede your progress in God's goal for your life. So God wants a holy people for a holy purpose. Do you want what God wants? And finally, number three, if you do, will you pursue God's means for growth? Will you pursue God's means for growth? A holy mission requires individual holiness. So are you willing to pursue God's design for your personal growth and then the growth of our church as we make disciples. Sometimes we just think, I, I love the truth, I appreciate the truth, and that's it. I just need to appreciate this book. But we're not done until it changes us. We're not done until it changes us. Do you have regular time where you read the Word? Do you have regular time where you fellowship with other believers to be sanctified in the truth together? This book is the means by which you'll be sanctified through the Father working through this book in your life. So we have to get in it. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have study groups. That's why we get together um, outside of the study groups even, just to hang out for coffee, to talk about the Word. Jesus prays for our joy. 
He prays for our protection for his disciples, and I think it overflows to us as well. And then he prays for sanctification. Set apart for a mission, set apart from sin, and it's all on the basis of the work that Jesus has done on the cross. He sanctified himself, he went to the cross, he maintained his own purity, um, sanctified, set apart from sin, so that he could give us a perfect record of sinlessness. And then he sanctified himself. He set himself apart for a mission, and that was to go to the cross and to win for us our redemption, our sanctification, and our glorification. We work, but we work because Christ has already finished the work on our behalf. Father, we thank you so much for these verses that are so clear in um, the mission that we've been given. We're not supposed to be of the world, but Jesus prayed, don't take them out. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of it. We're supposed to be in the world on mission for a purpose to make disciples. And that purpose cannot happen if we look just like the world, if we talk just like the world. If our desires are worldly desires, then what good is the mission that we will be sent on? What good is the gospel that we're proclaiming if it hasn't changed us? So we need to be set apart for a mission, which you have done. And we need to now be set apart from the sin that so easily entangles us. And to that end, we run to Christ. Your word is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we run to him, and we find our shelter in him alone. We don't look to ourselves, even as we talked about last week. We don't look to ourselves. We don't look inward for security. We look at your hand holding us ever so tightly, never letting us go, to give us joy, to protect us, and to sanctify us. God, make us faithful missionaries set apart for the mission of making disciples, set apart from the sin that you died to free us from, all to the praise of the glory of your grace. Pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.